Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast for data enthusiasts, data scientists, and data science leaders to learn the skills required to take your career to the next level. We're learning these skills directly from current industry leaders. I am your host, Felipe Flores, and today I'll be speaking with Matt Cooperholtz. Matt currently works for PwC, where he is their chief data scientist and a partner in their analytic intelligence division. Matt's had a fascinating career, started as an actuary. He's worked in startups and at some of the, he's worked at startups and at two of the big four consulting companies. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Let me know what you think. Hi, this is Felipe Flores, and today I'm speaking with Matt Cooperholtz. How are you doing, mate? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Philippe. Right. Thanks a lot for making the time. I've been looking forward to speaking with you. So right at the beginning, I wanted to ask you if you could give us an overview of your career journey so far. It started in 1980, 1981, when I was about nine years old and I used to ride home from school via Tandy Electronics and play with the TRS-80 that was on display because I was just so in love with computers. And I was literally there every day until the guys took pity on me and said, look, kid, do you want a job? And I started stamping the receipts with the thanks for shopping at Tandy in advance of them handwriting them. So they didn't have to worry about stamping them afterwards. It was obviously a busy work and it was 50 stamps earned me 20 cents. And I did that bloody job until I had $549.95 where I then bought the computer that was on display. <laughs> it oh, took two man. or three years. So I guess that was my first relevant job to data science because it was following my um, passion with computers. And when you grew up in the 70s and early 80s, I think I was lucky in a way because computers were something you had to make a very conscious choice to be involved with. It was a lot more hands-on and cutting code and, and it was a real passion of mine. Although it wasn't really clear how you had a profession that let you use computers the whole time. That really was the early days. So in choosing a profession, I was, I was good at maths as a kid. I guess I'm still good at maths. I was probably better at it then. But someone said, listen, you know, you want to go into business, you want to do maths. There's this um, profession called an actuary. There was 800 of them in Australia at the time. So it was also pretty rare. But I, I made some time in, I think, year eight or year nine to understand a bit more about the profession and did some work experience, actuarial firm, and I had my heart set on that career. And at the time, you could also get um, scholarships. There was a greatest demand for actuaries and there was a supply. So I, I got a scholarship from what turned out to be a fantastic company called Towers Perrin, where I worked through uni and then started my career. And what was fantastic about the actuarial career was this grounding in quality, real attention to detail. But what was fantastic for me was that there were these mainframe terminals that we used to sit in front of and give obscure commands to load client data up from tape and start processing this employee data to do actual evaluations. And then later there was this shared 486 in the corner that people would sort of line up for and program in Pascal. So I found myself in a career that allowed me to use computers. And then as that career progressed, I should also mention I did computer science at university as well as actuarial, which is a bit of a blessing in disguise. The first thing I ever failed in my life was a first year mathematics subject called ordinary differential equations. It was foul. I had a, I had a shocking exam and I jolted back to earth when I couldn't get into second year actuarial because this was a prereq. And so I put my scholarship on hold and I said, what am I going to do with this year? And I took up another stream of computer science, which turned out to be such a blessing in disguise because with formal training in computer science and actuarial, I found myself in the actuarial career doing more and more computer science, things like um, benefit modeling tools and, and web-based interactive tools and things like this. And one day, really not enjoying studying superannuation legislation to finish off my actuarial finals, I realized that I was learning 
Java in a couple of nights or a new way of working with the web. And I just thought, hang on a minute, this is really where my passion is. I've got to be able to merge these two of actuarial and computer science in the late 90s, which I think turned out to be the start of data science. We just didn't really know it. Left the actuarial for a fantastic opportunity to work in a startup company. The startup company was an artificial intelligence software company specialized in a a form of unsupervised neural network called the self-organizing map that I still rely on heavily today. I think it's been a fantastic um, mechanism for seeing that more data has more of a story to tell. So it opened my eyes to solving problems where you joined a certain data set with another data set with another data set and you could consider all of this data in those days typically in relation to customers and look at the interactions between financials and customer contacts and customer satisfaction and use of products because you could literally consider the interaction between thousands of different variables. So it was an enabler for me to start to see data as an asset, which was an interesting story to be telling people in the late 90s and early 2000s because no one was really thinking about their data as an asset. And then followed that journey. It was fantastic startup land because there was this enormous pressure to communicate and show people how this tool worked and what you're seeing in their data and how it might be relevant for their problems. At the tail end of that company, we were either going to sell it or probably go broke. And we successfully sold it to a Six Sigma consulting firm in the States. And then instead of going over there to, to look after that, it had been a tough four years. I went on a long holiday motorbiking around India with my then wife and little baby and decided that I wanted to come back and start my own consulting business in data science in solving problems with data in the early 2000s. I had some great clients left over from the startup days. I used to do all of Emirates customer loyalty work and a few others who trusted me and wanted me to work with their data. But one of the really interesting opportunities was with Deloitte Australia, who in the early 2000s were a distant fourth in the big four that had many CEOs in not so many years and were in a bit of a dark place. And a CEO came in from Global and his um, mandate is, as kind of Mr. Fix-It was to see what we could do with this poorly performing member firm. And he was very clever. He saw two things in the early 2000s that he thought could differentiate and get them back on track, and that was data and digital. And basically, I found myself in a fantastic position of being able to heavily influence and, and help them build this advanced analytics capability. And pretty soon, they ended up being my only client. I still ran my own company, but we built a team inside Deloitte and then ended up actually taking that global with the training and the processes, which is something I'll talk about later. The fantastic, I guess, 10 or so years working with them. And then after a challenging transition from that permanent contractor role inside the organization as a partner, yeah, I think I learned a lot about how to manage that the next time I went into a partnership, which was at PwC, where I'm, I'm currently a, a partner in the analytics team and their chief data scientist. So I defected, if you like, from Deloitte and went across to PwC to continue the journey of helping a large professional services firm industrialize and, and stay modern with its data science offerings, which is uh, where I've been for the last four and a half years. I definitely have so many questions for you. We'll dive deeper into each one of those stages. But first, I wanted to ask you where and when did your love of data come from? When was that data grabbed you in and pulled you in? I think it was via computers. So it was a mixture of just loving what technology could do, not playing games. It was applying logic. It was this tool to create with your mind um, in programming. And I guess what became especially interesting was when that tool was useful. And when a, when a, a computer tool became useful was when it did some operations that were very challenging for humans to do in the same way. And actuarial studies was all about pre-computers. How do you do very complex maths effectively with data, a bunch of future 
uncertain probabilities and reduce them to formulas and things you can look up in tables. But when you started applying computers to these same problems, you took a different approach and you could you could crunch the data differently. So I think um, it started very early, the passion with computers and problem solving, and then through actuarial translated into more pure data crunching and data work. But it was really in startup land when chasing opportunities to show this software off and no one really wanted to buy software. They just wanted a solution. I know you've, you've been in the business yourself. Seeing so many data sets come to life and the ability to tell a story and add value to people really started this deep appreciation for this very unique asset class, which is data. It's non-consumable, yet it creates value through the power of your mind. So you've got something that you're not using up. In fact, we're only making a heap more of that we can continually create value from. And if we network properly and share the tools and techniques for getting that value, then the upside is, is unlimited. So genuinely passionate about what it can do. It's a resource that we don't use up and that the value is incredible. And I love the, the way that you've always mixed business and data and computer science so well throughout your career. And obviously the startup side, I have heaps, heaps of questions, but I also wanted to briefly touch on, I heard that during your years at university, you were also into martial arts. Is that right? Yeah, well, I still am in a way, if you consider Tai Chi a martial art, which I do, I think it's a soft internal art, but uni was a bit more hardcore. I was doing a freestyle mixed martial art with no rules and lots of weapons and doing that um, sort of eight different sessions a week. So that was um, my exploits at uni. They were pretty wild days. I think I uh, had one of the first pair of bright red rollerblades that came to Australia from America. In fact, they weren't in Australia yet. My old man brought them back from America and I, I wore nothing but those to uni plus waist length red dreadlocks. So there was this bloodied, black eyed, missing teeth dude rolling around in red rollerblades with long dreadlocks going to uh, actuarial lectures. It was uh, what I really believe in nowadays and I believe in always have is this idea of diversity and not just how you look or, or how you spend your time, but really how you think about stuff. And that's part of you know what we'll talk about later with, with getting the most out of teams is maximizing that social capital and those differences, whether they come from cultural or educational or just individual makeup backgrounds. Three people thinking exactly the same are going to add substantially less value to a data challenge than three people thinking very differently. I've Absolutely redirected right. myself well there, didn't I? <laughs> so, mate, at the beginning of your career, when you went into the actuarial firm and you were consulting, what did that time teach you? What were some of the challenges and the lessons that you came across then that helped you uh, throughout your career? Yeah, I think the actuarial firm was, there's one thing that I'll never forget, one of the first actuarial valuations that I sort of presided over the legwork on, and this was real mainframe, frame-by-frame days, load all the employees, perform basically data quality checks, write the code to find the present value of them, add it all up and put the number on paper, and this took weeks. I was learning the systems. I'm sure I was hideously inefficient, and there was a nice junior actuary sort of letting me make my own mistakes and learn as we go. I mean, these things were fairly slow-paced, yet they produced a report every three years. I still remember after weeks of work, I took these results into the head actuary, the guy who's actually going to sign it off. He pulls out last time's report and flipped to a certain page and pulled out his Hewlett-Packard 12C reverse polish notation calculator. And he went, oh no, sorry, mate, you've made a big mistake somewhere. This, This number's out by a factor of blah. And I thought, how did he do 
what's taken me weeks of, you know, smashing a computer on the back of an envelope. And it was this idea of smell testing the reasonableness of a number. And I think that's one type of quality. Does it feel right? And you still see it today, junior folk down in the weeds, not seeing the forest for the trees. And they take your number and you go, really? Are there really 300 million people in Australia? You know, so first first of all, the smell test. Uh, second of all, the really detailed attention to quality and the importance of checking every step along the way. This firm was a top-notch firm. And not only did the person who did the work have to sign the quality form, the person who checked the work had to sign a quality form and the person who checked the checking. So this was the attention to detail, right? And then to move Move into startup land where, I mean, if you wrote an email to someone, it had to be printed out and checked before you're allowed to send it. The startup land was the complete opposite. It was fly by the seat of your pants. It was send out whatever you want. There was no time to check the work, let alone check the checking. But it was the actuarial firm, I guess, was that intense grounding in quality, plus also the adherence to process and the work ethic of a bunch of people. I've got, I've got a lot of time for actuaries. They study something very, very difficult and they rigorously practice across where they're giving an expert opinion. And I'm still in contact with some of those guys that are my untouchable bosses today, where now they're just guys who want to learn about data science. So that's been fantastic as well. And during that time, you mentioned that there would be, you would have limited time to do your coding on the mainframes. So obviously that meant that you would have to work really hard to get your code as accurately as possible before submitting it because the feedback from the computer was quite slow. In those times, what compensated for that slow feedback on, with the computer? What compensated to give you a little learning? Was it the other people? Was it the thinking? There was plenty to do. I mean, you were busy preparing your hand calculations of individual rows you were doing by hand, waiting to check them against the computer. And you had to be clever about it. You'd use something called interactive mode, which is where you said, I want the CPU to work on my problem now. And you'd run the top of your data on that. And by the way, there's a charge that showed up in your client's bill for every millisecond of CPU time. So you didn't use these resources without thinking. And then once you'd sort of push through a little bit of data, which happened quite quickly, you'd then run the rest in batch mode and and it might be done in the morning where you turned up. So I learned later that in the very first start of computer hacking and um, the emergence of of cyber criminals and things, as well as hackers that do good, not evil, a lot of this was coming out of countries such as the Eastern Bloc where there was limited computing power compared to the West. And if you ever look at what the guys did in tied Atari cartridges, for some reason, I like to look at the machine code of old 80s video games. Whenever you've got limited resources, you have to be really smart. You really have to push the boundaries of how you use memory. And the same today, you know, we're trying to crunch through hundreds of millions of rows. And I still think SQL is one of the main tools of choice of a data miner. And then you say, well, why did you write your SQL that way? Didn't you think about the fact that if this wasn't indexed or this wasn't joined properly, it was going to get really expensive. So I still think even with almost abundant computing power and, you know, elastic database on demand in the cloud, you still shouldn't be lazy. You should still think about what you're doing you should still run a test on a small amount of rows before you push through millions of rows. I think that was part of what what I learned from that old environment. Being resourceful and also doing your work iteratively, so getting quick feedback, even when you had limited resources, definitely Mm. great things to carry on today. I I still remember at the time at Deloitte, there was, um, and it used to drive me crazy because of course we were we're whinging the boss, we want more computing power, this is taking too long to run, you know, this has crashed, we'll never get through this many rows. And he was a very inspirational guy. I, I still think a lot about our time together. He said, Apollo 11, 
He said, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, you've seen the movie? I said, yes. He goes, well, when they were stuck in space and they had this old creaky ship, he said they had no choice but to work with exactly what they had to get these guys home. So, so as you approach these projects and think you want more computing power or more resource or someone that's better at computer vision, just remember that there is a way to make do with what you have. And especially with numbers and data, there, there comes a point where 500,000 rows are going to teach you as much as 5 million rows. And then how was your, your transition into an AI startup in the early 2000s, which would have been super exciting? Yeah, or maybe it was um, late 90s even. I think part-time through the late 90s and then full-time in 2000. It was really exciting. It was also um, really difficult because I, I sort of came straight from an actuarial world with very, mm-hmm. very professional and diligent attitudes to a world where there were some investors who weren't that involved and I ended up sort of driving a lot of the direction and, and the way that we worked. What was incredibly exciting was actually getting to know this technique. So I was just hungry for data. So most of the data in those days was um, open source data about medical research and there were a few early machine learning libraries you could download. And it was all about putting that data through this AI and comparing it to what I got when I looked at the data using my traditional statistical or descriptive approaches because at the start it was not trusting the AI and it was really pushing and pulling this technique and deliberately mucking around with data to see if I could fool it and doing a whole heap of prediction accuracy and sensitivity and learning all of these concepts and then alongside all of this crazy technical work you were suddenly trying to be a better salesperson and a communicator of why you would look at data and how to tell a story to non-technical audiences and then you were also trying to be a consultant in terms of realizing at the end of the day the people in the room care about is their business problem more than your software so how do you translate their business problem into a data challenge into an analytical challenge and then translate your results back to things they could do so it was a time that was hugely full of learning and with not very much sleep for four years I bet to tackle all those challenges at, at once, and especially that chain that you were just describing, that would require a lot, a lot of learnings. And what were some of the things that you found early on that worked or didn't work, I guess, value chain that you were describing before? Well, I learned that a better way to tell a story is to start with the answer and then work backwards to the method. At the start, I really wanted to take people rigorously on this journey of, you know, and then I did this with your data and then we did this 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 and then we got to this and I turn around and they're asleep, you know. I wanted to say, <laughs> hey, you have four types of customers, 15% of them, you've only got 25% share of the wallet. That could be X million dollars and here's how we found it out. So the art of storytelling was a massive learning. I think another really big one was the art and the science of good feature engineering. The best tool in the world applied to poorly prepared data gives a lower quality result than a pretty ordinary tool applied to well-prepared data. I had the opportunity to look at some exploratory oil and gas data, which was these guys had buried these little pieces of Gore-Tex only 50 centimetres down in jars, and they'd buried them every couple hundred metres around many square kilometres of a prospective oil and gas field. And they'd dig them up and they'd hit them with a mass spectrometer, and these little bits of Gore-Tex had absorbed the chemical signatures of any volatiles rising up through the earth. And you got back a data set that had picograms by 200 different hydrocarbons, you know, from CH2 all the way up to heavy chain hydrocarbons. I didn't know anything about this yet, but it was interesting. And the point of this was that this was the plentiful cheap data. It was only a couple hundred bucks per sample. But when they drilled an exploratory well, it was a couple hundred thousand dollars. 
So they had all these square kilometres, they had all of this data, and then they had a few expensive data points, which was, is there oil and gas there? Is there oil and gas there? Is there oil and gas there? And the, the key to this story was data science was a lot about finding the nuggets from the scarce, expensive stuff, the customer that defaulted, the person that churned, the employee that got injured, the fraud. That's rare and costly. And then you've got all this other stuff and you're trying to learn from this across this to avoid this or to make more of this in a nutshell, right? And interestingly, when this guy showed me what he was doing with the data, which was he was averaging the lower chain hydrocarbons and then the upper chain ones and putting two pins of two different colors in a map and trying to see the patterns. I said, yeah, but the devil's in the fact that you actually know 200 different hydrocarbons. This is perfect for my high dimensional analytical technique. Give me the data, I'll tell you where to drill. And using cross-validation, I was just getting these really ordinary results until I did a very simple transformation, which was I realized that the shape of the curve of the volatiles is much more relevant than the size of the curve because if there was a big lump of clay or rock in the way, less of everything would get through, but it would still have the same chemical signature, right? So all that needed to be done was each sample needed to be turned into relative proportions by dividing by the total weight of the sample. That was it. And then the models were brilliant and the guys made a fortune drilling in the right place. So the best technique would never have found that. I had to clue on to the fact that these samples needed to be normalized in a certain way. Now it's not rocket science in that example, but it's just the beauty of feature engineering. How you mix and transform the data before you model is much, much more important than the modeling you do. Both of those are extremely important lessons for people to keep in mind. When presenting insights and storytelling, start with the answer, work backwards, get to the punch, and feature engineering. <laughs> that's, that's a great illustration. Yeah, I think feature engineering is more important. I'm convinced that's the art and the, the craft of what we do. Often it's now involved in a modeling technique. You do some text mining, there'll be a lot of the feature engineering built into the text modeling. But when you think about it, so much of it is is preparing your text data, stemming and shingling and all the rest of it for analysis. And I guess the lines get blurred sometimes with unstructured data analysis. What's data prep versus what's modeling? And sometimes your data prep itself is a type of modeling. But when you deal with many disparate sources of data, how you join those and how you translate them to what we call a common point of view, which is each row is talking about the same thing is definitely where huge amounts of experience are relevant, where really open thinking is relevant, where concepts from other disciplines becomes very relevant. I think sometimes that's why when we've got theoretical physicists and people who've dealt with completely different data have a lot to add to business data mining because they think about things differently. Definitely. And throughout your career, how have you kept up with the, the technical side of our field? How have you kept up with the technical side and the technical developments of the industry, what's your secret? I literally just spend um, a fair bit of time thinking about that stuff and, and reading and researching because I'm genuinely passionate and interested about it. So there's a huge hobby with tech, which fortunately, you know, tech's all been about computers. I've had a, a massive fascination in cloud and internet, had an internet business on the side. So that's sort of morphed into underst understanding and appreciating cloud. Practically on the ground with clients, especially in startup land, you know, there was a lot of head to head with existing analytical resources and they'd say, what about blah, blah and have you tried blah, blah? And I'm saying, you know, I've got to look into that and I'd suddenly have two new things that I'd have to go home and research and learn about. And there's also, I've started using Blinkist, which is this way to quickly get a digest of a business book. 
as opposed to reading the whole thing. And it's cheating. You're not looking at the book, right? You're not really reading it. There's the same with a bunch of techniques. I don't have to know exactly what Kafka does or this form of streaming data technology. I just have to know that it is a streaming data technology and broadly it will achieve A, B and C. Now that literally takes two or three minutes to still be able to have a conversation where its role in a project is something I'm sufficiently expert in to appreciate and then just know that within the network I can find someone who can actually do it. So, you know, I got off the tools a long time ago and getting off the tools raises a lot less about a lot more. So I could probably look it up, but applying deep, traditional, complex statistical tests, all I need to know is that I have a qualified statistician and someone who's qualified enough to check it. And he says to me, what I'm testing for is the hypothesis of blah, and it makes these assumptions and the result is blah. I don't have to know how to do it anymore, right? The same as as much of the rapidly emerging field of AI and machine learning, I, I need to know enough to be dangerous and where I can get hold of resources that can actually do it. And at the level I'm operating now, that's perfect to be able to tell a congruent story. Exactly. I don't know if I answered the question. Really, you're really just being passionate about stuff and realizing that I don't need to know as much about everything anymore. And so how about the flip side? How do you pick what problems to tackle with the... It's kind of easy nowadays. Uh, I have become a lot more commercial in terms of I know what sort of clients I should be working for. I did the analysis for the firm of every hour that every person's ever billed on every client and every expense record and every job. And there's undoubtedly the right type of work for us to be doing. Fortunately, the right type of work for us to be doing is for very large, complex clients in a range of industries. And it relates to the problems that they're facing, which inevitably relate to disruption and the changing nature of customers and the ability to target mark to lower, lower more granular segments. All of that stuff's very interesting, but um, the problems I should be chasing are the problems that my clients are facing, which relate directly to their profitability, as opposed to academic problems or problems that are of interest. So I've been spruiking text mining now for at least a decade and have done projects on and off in that decade that use text mining. But I never built a whole business out of it because it was just never that relevant to these problems. You know, it became relevant in things like safety analytics where the comments on the form were freeform text or a little bit in call centers and customer service. Nowadays, we find ourselves doing a whole heap more of it because it's a type of data that's more plentiful that can be applied to many of the real world problems. I guess the point of the story is whilst I had an awareness and a fascination with unstructured data analysis, I wasn't doing it commercially until there was was a, a client need for it. Yeah, and what's in, in the vision for the house? Well, mate, it's interesting, right? Because I jokingly used to say, I've got to use computers at home, otherwise I've got no work-life balance. One of the things that I have deliberately been wary of is using computers all day for work and then coming home and going, oh God, I couldn't touch a computer because exactly what we talked about before, staying at the forefront of the field, as much of that is me tinkering around at home and, and building small web-enabled things, which then I understand the possibilities of IoT and the data generated there, or reading up on obscure cyber attacks because they're of interest or playing around around with the latest tools for fun because if you don't have a passion for something, it's very hard to, and I think these are questions we had later, but how do you best accelerate through your career? Well, if you genuinely love it, then you're not working. So it's why my house is um, computer enabled and I, I keep building extra technology things in it and that sort of technology is art and it's trying to see the beauty in all of this stuff. I completely agree. Your home should be a place for learning as well. Definitely not a, a 
place where you go and don't look at the screen and try to forget about everything. That is great. I wanted to ask you about your time working with Deloitte and helping build the analytics practice there. What was that journey like? Gee, it was a fantastic journey. It was a time when you had a leadership that was hungry for a competitive advantage. You had a culture that wasn't afraid to mandate, you must use analytics in all of these big projects. And many firms don't have that culture because they sort of say, well, business of businesses. But Deloitte at the time was, was fairly directive under this CEO. You had really smart people, you had on-trade great clients. It was a fantastic time. I'd structured the incentives with Deloitte in such a way that it was, it was in my interest to skill as many people with what I could do as opposed to just keep it for myself. So pretty quickly cottoned on to the fact that if you're trying to build and scale a team, you need to be able to speak the same language. And that was sort of the start of instituting standard analytic processes. You need to speak the same language with even things like version control and file naming so that there's no more sitting down at a project and seeing version latest or trying to figure out which model built which set of output. You had to standardize the way tools were used because people could just keep writing variations of the same hundred lines of SQL code, or you could build and deploy one function that you tested once and then everyone used, um, which meant you had to have knowledge management, which meant you had to have case studies done. You know, it was just learning, 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 learning about all the things that were needed to do to build um, a scalable practice. And Towers Perrin was an international firm and PwC is obviously an international firm and Deloitte's an international firm and even the startup was an international firm. <laughs> a lot of the big firms I worked in, you, you have this feeling that Australia is just inconsequential compared to the US and Europe. And Deloitte was a time where Australia had bet on data years ahead of the US. So here we were, little old Australia, exporting processes and tools and ways of doing things that I'd essentially made up out of necessity to, you know, the US, which in all of my experience so far was just this behemoth that told you what to do, not the other way around. So that was really exciting to be the first in the world doing something a certain way and sort of convincing the whole network. That would be extremely exciting. Never to be repeated, I think, mate. Yeah, yeah, I think right. that was just that was just a time, right? It was a special time in the world waking up to data. Everyone's there now. We've got to watch out for the data scientists in in China and India. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, they are coming. That's for sure. So I love the internal focus around sharing knowledge and developing standards for for people to be able to be more effective and move with the same pace. How mm. was it on the flip side on working with customers, getting customers, educating the market? Because you guys were leaders in that sense as well. As you were building this quite large practice, you were mm. going out and, and selling what data could do. How was that for you? Well, you start to look at the benefits of a large professional services firm, Deloitte, PwC, they've all got very talented people with multiple different skills. It was this lesson in, and you did it in economics, you proved it in macroeconomics, didn't you? That even if there were two countries and one could produce this and that at this cost and this and that at this cost, even if this one did both cheaper, it was still better to specialise. At Deloitte, very quickly, I learned that um, even more so at PwC, because we actually sit closer to the traditional management consulting division, there are people who are expert in solving business problems and strategizing what to do with insights. We call them strategy consultants or management consultants. That's their craft. That's what they trained in. And they're not amazing at data. They turn to a spreadsheet and try and do something top down. What happens, though, when you've got their way of thinking about 
the levers a business can pull and the pitfalls of thinking that you can take insights and monetize them this way. And then you start to power it with your ability to get deep insights and complicated subtleties in bottom-up data analysis. I guess the answer to the question is found the people who are sort of already doing that and empowered them. So starting to see that analytics shouldn't be a standalone function, but rather an enabler for other functions, whether those are functions relating to supply chains or procurement or financials or risk or employees or customers, analytics is an enabler for all of that as opposed to something that should be going to market in isolation. It's one of the, maybe one of the big tensions that I, that I think that we have in the industry of what do you start with? Do you start with the data? and do an analysis and see what you find? Or do you start with the question, with the insight that you're trying to find and work backwards? Obviously, in this case, you're talking about the benefits of starting with the insight. What are your views on starting with the data? It's a bit of both, I think. And we're going back now 15 years. It was, give me your data, I'll show you something interesting. Now, the first thing we do if we've got a business problem when you were tackling the business problem of how best to pick up garbage, which is reverse logistics, which is actually a very interesting challenge and it was um, traditional route optimization, but you're not sure how much you're going to pick up. Anyway, it was a juicy problem. But the first thing we did was um, get up at 3 a.m., put on the high-vis jackets and the steel cap boots and go ride on the garbage trucks because the data relates to something that's happening in the real world now. Maybe it doesn't if you're analyzing data from nuclear imaging or something highly theoretical. But where I focus in, in practical, artificial intelligence, practical data science, commercial data science, it's related to some business process. And at the end of the day, you're probably going to ask some people to do something differently or configure some machines to do something differently. So you should see what that is. So don't start with the question or the data. Start with the business and what it does and what its reason for being is. Then I think you've got to have maybe not the question, but the question space in mind. This is a question about optimizing garbage trucks. It's not should garbage truck A drive down this street in this direction. That's too detailed, but we've got to know what it is we're looking at the data for. And even more important than the question is a view as to what sort of answers are valuable. The insights I find have to be aligned with your capacity to act. Riding on that garbage truck, I saw that he had to do these main streets before the traffic started. Well, he had to go down this lane in this way because he couldn't turn around there. There were constraints that needed to be built into the answer or, or more generally, even nowadays say to customers, all right, you've got a problem with um, customer churn. Here is a perfect churn predicting magic wand. It will tell you exactly to which customer is going to churn next for what reason. Take that as given. Now, how are you going to turn that into dollars? Do you have marketing? Are you going to give away? What are you going to give away? What about the rest of the market finds that out? Is it legal? Is it anti-competitive? There's so many things to go from insights to money in the bank beyond analytics. So we love doing great analytics and we love playing with data and we love finding insights. But unless they're actionable and unless they're on a question that someone cares about, then you're just having a frolic. And I think that's where technical folk can let themselves down, which is they get too obsessed with the technique of the whole thing as opposed to start with why you're doing it. And even at a higher level, why this stakeholder cares about you doing it? What's their incentives? What, what are they ultimately marked on by their boss or their own desires? So those are the questions that are important to have a view on before we just say, let's look at the data and see what it says. I've already shared that I'm right into unsupervised techniques, which is you're not approaching the data to test hypothesis A or hypothesis B. You're approaching the data to find inherent patterns. But the way that I extract features from the data to allow those patterns to emerge will also relate to this sort of questions I'm trying 
trying to answer, which themselves will be framed in terms of the sort of actions that it's possible for me to take. Non-actionable insights are the most boring thing ever. That's right. It used to be exciting. Look how clever I am. Look what I found buried in this data. So what? It's interesting. Money in the bank. That's right. Or happier citizens or safer workplace. You know, it's not all about dollars, but something that matters. Something that matters. See the effect of your work in the world. And how do the customers react to those questions when you challenge them to say, what would you do if you had this problem solved? As in, like, if you knew analytically how to improve it, what would you do differently in your business as a result? Well, I think that customers have become more informed over time. They're more educated, but you still walk into meetings where people say, you know, I need some of this AI stuff. I need some of this big data stuff. So, all right, you know, can we start with what's keeping you up at night beside the fact that you think you want some AI? Like, what's bothering you on your scorecard? Um, is it Amazon coming to Australia? Is it your marketing budget being reduced? Is it your product becoming old or badly priced? Really drill down into what's bothering you and why and start with that simple approach. And anyone that can afford to use us should be sophisticated enough and intelligent enough to know where their business could perform better. So it's usually relatively painless to get a decent problem statement from a customer. Then you help by saying, well, you know, your data here could be used in that way to answer that question. Oh, I really never thought about that. And what are some interesting projects or applications that you've worked on or seen in your time at PwC? Uh, Ones that you can share, obviously. What are some of the interesting things that, that have been occupying your mind? I can share this, um, and it still is the most interesting that's in the public domain. It's this idea of trust. And what does trust look like in a digital world? And the trust is broken and breaking and getting worse in governments and large institutions and strangers. And a lot of this is because technology has provided much greater connectedness, but the connection is now with relative strangers. So then you have these data-driven approaches to increasing trust, like average ratings from other customers who you don't know, but you trust they're giving you an accurate rating of this seller or this driver. So, okay, so technology has caused the trust issue, which is a side product of the massive amounts of convenience that it's bought us. But the breakdown in trust can be massively dangerous if you're talking about something like counterfeit food and drugs, 300 Chinese babies getting sick with the melamine milk scandal, counterfeit protein enhancing substances. And there's counterfeit drugs all over the place, especially in Asia and China. And then you talk about other types of counterfeit that aren't really hurting anyone, but rip off luxury brands are detracting from real value. Diamonds that purport to be a certain quality versus another harm the industry. If you're trying to really stop conflict diamonds, then conflict diamonds masquerading as non-conflict diamonds. There are just all these places where crime has got into supply chains because they're so big and complex and difficult to track. So we did a massive project last year. I ran the technical stream of a consortium. This is in the news, which is why I can talk about it. Uh, led by Alibaba, this incredibly large marketplace and in fact company full stop in China. Third largest cloud computing provider in the world. Some fantastic yeah. AI researchers and inspirational to work with. And Alibaba, Australia Post, a fantastic, iconic client. I've have always loved them, worked with them for 20 years. New Zealand Post and then Blackmore's Vitamins and Fonterra Dairy. So two producers, two logistics companies and a distributor in China. And the Aussie government, the Chinese government and the New Zealand government. And what we're basically starting to do is use uh, blockchain and distributed ledger technology as one of the parts of building trust. In fact, all that allowed you to do was trust 
trust data, but then to use data and analytics to provide visibility through supply chains to end up giving the consumer a trust score as to the likelihood that this good was um, original and untampered. So I loved that project because the internet was missing a layer of decentralized trust. Distributed ledgers bought that. But the internet plus distributed ledgers was still missing a protocol and a language for describing stuff has happened that you can trust for these reasons. And this project was starting to, and all of the ways it's continuing now, are starting to make a difference in perhaps a standard that one day you will expect to be able to understand the providence and the history of every good. And it's your right as a consumer to know that these producers have been certified to not be using child labor um, or to having reasonable working conditions. And all that is is data, visibility, and then analytics to plow through that amount of data to give me a simple insight as a customer. And then you get into the beauty of having collected all that supply chain data, suddenly things can be optimized and more efficient. So now we're helping trade at the border and Australia become a better country to trade with through exactly the same techniques through an offshoot initiative called the Trade Community System. We can help optimize use of fuel by ensuring that containers and logistics are full and coordinated. You can do all of these things if we can get this protocol up, an open protocol for the benefit of the whole world to describe trusted events, stuff that's happened. So that was, for the first time in years, one of those ideas where I said the potential for this is is massive, which doesn't mean it's going to work. It just means the potential is massive. And one of the questions we talked, you raised in the pre-interview was about what are some of the challenges and some of the challenges are exactly like this where you think wow if only this amazing idea was really snowballed and a great idea or a great product does not make a great company or a great venture it's accepting sometimes that yeah that was fantastic work but it doesn't mean it's going to be everything that it could be and not getting too emotionally connected to something you invest time in but being able to put it aside and move on to the next thing are probably some of the biggest challenges I've had to face. Definitely, definitely. But that application sounds extremely exciting and something that is needed in the world. The impact that that can have is tremendous. Mm. Uh, Can you share where that initiative is at? Yeah, sure. This is all, again, in the public domain. We presented to the managing director of the Alibaba Group and the CEOs of all of those companies um, probably seven or eight months ago, the findings of an enormous amount of work that had both the technology and all kinds of legal and commercial. I mean, there was an enormous project. But they've now taken that and are piloting it. So it's being used in various ways, live in the field in Alibaba, who already had some fantastic blockchain and AI researchers thinking about the problem and they're already sort of helping track medicines through China. So we're augmenting and suggesting more about what they could do. The other members of the consortium are using the findings in various ways to enhance security. We've taken it and moved it into containers, shipping containers and tracking of shipping containers. This time trying to solve the problem of making Australia easier to trade with. We're also finding applications for that sort of same level of digital trust in, in all kinds of places. So even now, applications in responsible AI, which is another area I'm focusing on, we can talk about in a bit. So it's one of those things that has got a life of its own. Do we have a published open standard protocol that the whole world should be using for supply chains? Not quite yet. There have been a number of other entrants rushing into the market. My fear is, if you're old like me, you remember beta versus VHS, you used to have to go down to the video store and choose one format over the other, right? Because they couldn't agree at two different standards. You know, we've got that times a million at the moment. All these people with all these great ideas of how to track things through a supply chain isn't doing anyone any favors when we're not thinking of an open standard protocol and computers all use ASCII. There was a time when they 
I didn't. And a big Endian computer couldn't speak to a little Endian computer, you know, and then we just look back and say, well, geez, that doesn't make any sense. Of course, we've all got to speak the same language. I think it's the same thing for this type of visibility trust issue is um, trying to standardize protocols and languages. So I hope we get there. We're still pushing it. So I definitely want to ask you about the responsible AI. And then I want to ask you about your passion around exponential technologies, but obviously both related. But let's start with the responsible AI. What are you passionate about in that space? You know, I think this is one that every now and then you see something on a trajectory and exponential technologies means that all the trajectories are getting steeper. But you see something on a trajectory, you go, oh, wow, that's interesting. And this is on a trajectory that I think the initiative I'm, I'm helping lead, um, we're going to be very early to market with a very interesting product, which starts to address the challenge of who's checking that the computer's doing the right thing. And, you know, we could talk for hours just about AI because I challenge the, the listeners and everyone actually to define it properly for me because you start getting stuck with defining intelligence without even worrying about artificial intelligence. But let's just say computers having more of an influence in our lives, whether it's a lot of simple algorithms and their combined effects leading to nonlinear chaotic dynamics or whether it's a very big single complex complicated AI or data process. Because, in fact, you've got to look at the whole process. The data goes on before the AI. And afterwards, if you're asking, you know, is the machine doing the right thing? It's not just the modeling. You ask the question, is the machine doing the right thing? Which can be as inoffensive as, should I have got that marketing message? Well, all right, I'm happy to hit delete or I'm not a pregnant female. You've got that wrong. But what about when it's things that really affect me, like I'm um, not going to get that loan or there has been a prophylactic policing event? We start to think about civil rights and or anyway, or that self-driving car has, you know, hit my kid on their bike. Now, these are all ways in which machines and the effect of machines are becoming more prevalent on our, not just our welfare, but the way we live our lives. And you think about what's motivated people to develop them. It's not always consumers' best interests at heart. Netflix is trying to develop shows that maximize your time on screen, not that satisfy you and you then put it down and do something else other than watch TV. That's fine. That's their business model. But know that that's what their algorithms are trying to do. So the motivation for developing these algorithms in the first place aren't always aligned with consumers' best interests. And how do you, and even if they are, it's highly unlikely that some form of bias hasn't crept in there. And it's highly unlikely that they're completely explainable or transparent or interpretable. And it's highly unlikely that there is robust or as secure to nefarious usage or reverse compilation? Or how do you know that they obey the legal constraints of this jurisdiction versus that jurisdiction with their use of data? And is the ethical framework correct? And is the governance process okay to ensure that all of this keeps happening? So I've just described the five pillars of our offering of responsible AI, which is a testing for bias, a testing for explainability, interpretability, transparency. And there's a number of great techniques for turning black boxes into see-through boxes, tests for robustness and security ethical and legal frameworks and checking and a whole set of advice around governance. And we want to produce this as a platform offering, or sorry, rather, we are producing this as a platform offering because when you've got continually changing models, let's say at a bank, and you then get questioned, how did you make that decision that affected Matt Kupholz three months ago? It's going to make sense to have had a new form of assurance 
from a company like PwC that's checking those models and validating them against those unintended biases that may have crept in. So I just think it's going to be huge. I think look at traditional audit financial statements. Didn't exist before in the 1930s in America. Dodgy financial statements were losing too much money for investors. So the industry dragged forward a need for third-party trusted assurers to say these financial statements can be trusted. That's an age-old problem. And then there's a solution, which is the audit we all now accept has to be done for a listed company. So what we're now facing into with machines and AI is, doesn't this need to be checked and doesn't it need to be regulated and how can we trust it and how do we sign off? And there's going to be massive consequences when a fully automated plane crashes, but there's massive consequences when a non-fully automated plane crashes as well. You just want to know, was all due care or the right amount of due care and responsibility taken with those algorithms? And that's this whole field of, here it talks about as explainable AI or interpretable AI or trusted AI. We're calling it responsible AI. You could possibly call it responsible use of data. So it's exciting to be pioneering something and taking it to market where I think clients are going to want it uh, or governments are going to make people have it. (laughs) This will be regulated and legislated in one way. GDPR already says any European citizen has the right for you to explain why you made a choice that affected them. Try and find one of your big digital first companies able to explain exactly why you were served that ad up. Oh, because of a complex neural network that's rebuilt every night. <laughs> what is an explanation anyway? And do I have to have a maths degree to understand it? Or there's a lot of untested concepts here. That is definitely the future. Very, very important. And we're heading. How are you guys going about developing the offering? And can you share where, where it's at? Yeah, sure. I mean, we'll be launching in market soon. Um, We've been developing it for most of this year. It's work we've already been doing. So we've already been doing this. I've done an ethical framework recently for predictive modeling. We've always done good governance advice, but it's tying all of that together and trying to standardize it and also trying to turn it into something that's delivered continuously through a platform. That's pretty different. And we've already done that before as well. So we're leveraging our existing analytical platforms. It's nice to be doing something that's truly global, that's designed to be the same or largely the same in every country. which means I'm working on a big international team with it. So yeah, we're just approaching it like a a massive software and offering development projects with tasks and project management and teams and heavy academics thinking about some of the statistical testing you can apply to complex forms of AI. And it's very exciting. So testing with clients at the moment, testing how they're receiving it, very relevant with Royal Commissions and things like that. I mean, Microsoft CEO has just released a book talking about this. Everyone's taking a position on it, but we want to try and say, this isn't a position. This is something you can do to have a brand that stands for trust, basically helping you you have that trust in the hundreds and hundreds of models that your large bank is currently using, which affect your customers. And how are initiatives like this born? It's tough with 170,000 employees around the world and everyone with a good idea. I guess um, we've got a structure that allows us to follow where we think work is interesting. And as long as it's commercial and doesn't expose our firm to the wrong sort of risk, you pursue that work. And then you start to share it through your network. And then you start to find commonalities of, hey, we're being asked a lot more for governance. And then you've got people that are watching external data. And I mean, we mine sentiment and hot topics all the time for all our 
various industry sectors and you start to get a feel for this is a trend. And then globally, there's meetings of all the analytic leaders that say, well, do we agree that these are the big trends? And out of that subset, do we agree that we have something unique to offer that's in line with what we already stand for? And out of that gets born a handful of initiatives. And I'm sure plenty of ones that could have succeeded are left on the cutting room floor as well. But I'm very excited about the potential for this one. Maybe not as excited about the visibility through supply chains with blockchain, but uh, <laughs> you know, out of two big juicy projects, these are pretty two good ones. And would you say that one of your specialties is in delivering or helping orchestrate these big, juicy projects, that that's something that you've been building towards or getting experience throughout your career? Yeah, I think I'm playing to strengths. I I need a project manager and I need scrum masters and I need people who are going to send out bills and track time and do all the things that doesn't come very naturally to me. But um, what I have got better at is seeing a big picture and the mountain we want to climb and sort of plotting that the best way to climb it might be that hill. And if that turns out to be too hard, we'll go across. Seeing, I guess, the bigger picture has become clearer with with experience. And then also just having the faith in smaller teams to be self-sufficient and be less of a control freak about everything and realize that you know if you if you subdivide the task well enough and then then that group will go off and do that task you'll be fine and i did want to ask you about your passion and your views around exponential technologies can you tell us a little bit about them and how you see them coming in I started watching Singularity University videos a while ago. I was lucky enough to go to the summit and Singularity University focuses on what they call exponential technologies. The most famous example of all is Moore's law with the number of processes on a chip continuing to double every 18 months. And they then make the point, well, if the inputs are unlimited and if the metric is performance per dollar, then you see exponential technologies everywhere. I mean, in your phone, they'd be in the battery, in the screen, the communications device, in, in many different areas, performance per dollar of these components is exponential. Data itself is growing exponentially. Communications, networks, um, storage, all of these things are exponential technologies. And they then make the point, which is not just do you see it everywhere, but they start to reinforce each other. So when the amount of data is exponential and your ability to process is exponential and the algorithms are exponential and then your ability to manipulate genes as a result of this is exponential, what do you have there? You've got four or five exponential technologies making it quite likely that it will cure cancer within the next decade. So that they bounce off each other. And I just find that so incredibly exciting and as a species we're quickly going to a different place that I believe in the goodness of humans so I believe that place is going to be a better place time will tell I certainly believe that there is no way you can, my kids are 15 and 12 absolutely no way that you could predict what their job titles are going to be that's how quickly it's moving they're going to do things that don't even exist today that's exactly right. They, um, You said 15 and 12. I was going to say they might not drive, for example, but maybe the 15-year-old could be one of the... They'll drive for fun. Masks. I think they'll drive for fun, but I think um, many things will be different. I mean, my car half drives itself today anyway. It's got um, lane assist and auto braking and auto acceleration and a camera in front and yeah. I was with my father-in-law on the weekend, and he's a farmer in country New South Wales, cattle farmer, and he was showing me the technology in his car where it has lane assistance and regulating cruise control if you get too close to the car in front. He was loving it, absolutely loving it. And uh, he said that now he doesn't drive his old truck because it doesn't have that technology. So I can see it changing everyone's life. I wanted to ask you about in your career, You've always been extremely curious and you've leveraged your strengths around data, business, 
computer science, you've leveraged those to get into all sorts of different problem spaces and looking into challenges that sometimes people don't assign to the titles that you might have had, right? So for example, now as a chief data scientist and partner in artificial intelligence, you're looking into blockchain and supply chains. Sometimes people might say, well, those two don't necessarily go together. Has that been <laughs> deliberate in forging your path of essentially taking where your curiosity, going to you where your curiosity can take you and adding business value there? Have those choices been deliberate or how has that happened for you? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it's serendipitous, very much so in a way. My curiosity will go in a certain direction, something will appeal and I'll learn more about it. And then within a month or two, there'll be a problem and I'll say, oh, but what about this? And because people know I'm that sort of person, they keep showing me more stuff. And then when they get an inquiry of, do you want to see this thing, Mr. Blah? He says, no, I don't, but this guy does. And so I see more stuff and then I have more stuff to pick what I'm curious about. And I guess there's a gut feel to whether or not something is just interesting. And there are nine out of 10 things that are interesting I learned something about I never do anything with versus interesting with a huge amount of potential. So blockchain was always more than just cryptocurrency to me. It was the infancy of a technology which completely changes the nature of, of trust. And more recently, looking closely at digital humans and digital avatars with two-way emotional reads in and out. And they're now, we've built a project, they're now greeting people to all of our offices. And I remember, you know, one of the people I report to saying, well, do that on your own time. You know, I just can't see how that's going to translate into money. Because it was the early days of it. I was flying over to New Zealand and meeting with these guys and trying to get something up and running. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go with my gut on this. I think you're wrong. I'm going to keep going with it. And now it's very obvious how this is going to change call centers and customer contact and for the better and congruent experiences where you have an always on low cost interface to your customers and your customers to you. So that's just an example of one where it felt right. I was challenged and they said, you know, go make some money. Don't play around with these toys. But there's a feel to when that toy is not just a toy, but also disruptive. That is experience throughout a career and following your curiosity and your passion and delivering business value as a result. That is excellent. One last question for you, but before we jump into that, I wanted to ask, is there ways for the listeners to help you guys or join you guys in tackling some of these challenges and exciting projects that you've been talking about? What a great time to be someone who works with data. Like it was a good time for me to study actuarial when they still had scholarships, you know. There was a demand that was much greater than supply. There is yeah. no doubt the demand is greater than supply at the moment, which has some ordinary effects as well. I think, um, you know, there's no replacement for experience and this idea that without experience you're suddenly worth this enormous amount is bound to disappoint the person who's paying that enormous amount. But nevertheless, what a great space to be in. We're hiring as many good people as we can get our hands on. So, of course, course, apply to me direct or 3PWC, but this isn't, isn't an ad for what I hope is going to be the biggest and best analytics practice in Australia, but rather just an ad for the profession and that it's worth getting into, whether you go industry or professional services, government or private, small or large, niche or general, there's no better place to be, in my opinion. Not that we're biased. I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> So the last question that I have for you is what piece of advice would you like to leave the listeners with? Something that either you see a mistake that you see people making or something that you would like to for them to consider throughout their career. What's something that maybe helped you or that you'd like to leave them with? 
sounds cheesy, but to find your passion and just follow it and then you love what you're doing, if you can do that, if you can genuinely find your passion and if it is in the field of data science, find the bit that you're passionate about and, you know, follow that for a bit. So identifying what you're really into is, is very important and staying true to yourself. And I think the huge one has got to be how do you stay curious in something that's moving so quickly and you can't stay on top of everything, but you still, you need to keep learning. How do you keep that curiosity alive and read the right book? or go to the right websites or listen to the right videos or podcasts to keep snowballing your curiosity. I think that's really important. That is outstanding and such a great note to end on. Mate, thanks so much. This has been so welcome. Fantastic. Absolutely, absolutely brilliant. So thank you so much for your time and for sharing all those amazing and valuable insights. You're most welcome. I hope to see you soon. Definitely. Boost your data science career with skills that count. James Cook University's 100% online Master of Data Science is one of Australia's fastest. Study while you work and focus on just one subject at a time. Visit online.jcu.edu.au for more information. As data scientists, we're always looking for ways to gather more data and to understand our customers better. Firebox do just that. With Firebox, you can easily create a quiz for your app, website, or blog. These quizzes are used to generate leads, educate, or engage your customers. Check them out today. That's Firebox with a Y, so F-Y-R-E-B-O-X.com. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.